0: It is nice speaking with you, Jessica. Um, I I really appreciate your time. Can you tell me a bit about your activism and a bit about Appalachian Voices?
1: Sure. So, I've been based in Central Virginia my whole life, um, and my personal activism and environmental advocacy has centered around water protection issues. So, I was and continue to be a volunteer for environmental organizations here in Virginia, and then came to work professionally in that field a couple of years ago, first with the Sierra Club Virginia chapter and now with Appalachian Voices. And Appalachian Voices is about 20 years old. They are focused on a just and equitable, clean energy economy for everyone. Uh, The issues that we work on range from cleanup of coal ash to coal mine reclamation to um, energy democracy to stopping new fossil fuel infrastructure and working on greater access to shared solar and distributed solar. So our work is based in the Appalachian region, but just many parts of the state, too, as these issues are experienced so many places.
0: Right, right. And so can you tell me how long has Appalachian Voice been around?
1: So I think... This may be the 21st year. It's over 20 years old and has grown and is just doing such interesting and powerful work in so many regions of Appalachia. Our Tennessee staff works with miners, with those uh, who are impacted by the fossil fuel industry. Our staff in far southwest Virginia works on mine reclamation and working to achieve Benefits for those experiencing black lung. It's an organization that has been part of the fight against the now canceled Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the Mountain Valley Pipeline since their announcement. And it's very much rooted in community power building. Um, and so I'm just so pleased to have the chance to work here and, and um, participate in, in this work with colleagues. A lot of Appalachian Voice's focus has also been on the issue of mountaintop removal and just Can you explain the, that to us? the harm that comes from that. So it's a type of mining where it's incredibly extractive. And um, instead of sort of pulling the coal from the mountains in sort of a what you might think of a standard mining process, they are actually blowing up the tops of mountains to gain access that way. And so It's incredibly destructive. They use heavy explosives to blast off hundreds of feet um, from the mountain ridges to access the seams of coal that are below. So that creates dirt, rubble. That creates sedimentation into whatever waterways are near there. Um, And then that's it. That's what the top of the mountain is. It's not something that can be restored to original condition. And then you also run into problems with how they meet federal rec- reclamation requirements, how they treat the area, if they're using a spray or something that is toxic to kind of refill with non-native grasses. That also gets into the water bodies that are nearby. So it's really a devastating process and it has had a devastating impact. And so one of the ways I actually learned about Appalachian Voices many years ago was through their work with the I Love Mountains campaign. And that's when I, I was most familiar with their work in the mountaintop removal. So that, that is you know, work that continues as reclamation happens. happen. Cool,
0: very, very cool. So um, can I ask you, how long have you been with Appalachian Voices?
1: So I had just had my, recently my one year anniversary with Appalachian Voices. I had done some volunteering. but right, thank you. <laughs> some volunteering with them before, uh, but had long admired their work and appreciated the way uh, in which they supported communities impacted by the fossil fuel industry. Um, so I'm I'm relatively new, uh, but have had a chance through uh, my previous employment at Sierra Club um, and as a volunteer for the Chesapeake Climate Action Network to partner with them on priorities, events, uh, different advocacy opportunities.
0: Awesome! Awesome! And so can I ask, what led your organization and you to the MVP protest from a few weeks ago?
1: So Mountain Valley Pipeline is a project that has been incredibly harmful to communities in Appalachia, to their water, their air, their land, their livelihoods. Um, and we have, uh, Appalachian Voices is engaged on this issue since it was announced. So we have been in opposition to Mountain Valley Pipeline um, since it was announced in 2014 and have been working with those along the route uh, that are impacted. So um, we have followed this issue very closely, have worked with the community groups that are leading the fight against Mountain Valley Pipeline and additionally Mountain Valley Pipeline Southgate. So we have staff in North Carolina, and so they have had a lot of focus on Alamance and Rockingham counties where Mountain Valley Pipeline's proposed Southgate extension would come. So this is an issue that we're very actively involved in, very appreciative to be working alongside the community members that are working on this, including Crystal Cavalier-Keck and Jason Keck. Um, And so I've had a chance to work with them, partner with them, and just so appreciative of the work they are leading and the indigenous-led work that is happening around MVP Southgate and MVP Mainline. Um, And so we were really appreciative to be able to support the rally that was held on September 17th in Richmond in opposition to MVP's Lambert Compressor Station. That would have been the date that the Air Pollution Control Board was potentially voting on the permit for Lambert Compressor Station. And so Crystal and Jason, there thankfully felt very strongly to keep that as a a day of action to keep that issue front of mind for folks and to say to the deq and others that you know we're we're watching we know this project is wrong we know it should uh the lambert compressor station permit should be denied it is environmentally unjust um so we've uh been doing work alongside with other partners and community groups in opposition to the Southgate Extension and specifically the Lambert Compressor Station. And so that decision by the Air Board has moved multiple times. We saw that the, the permit, I believe, was announced in December of last year, the sort of draft permit coming out, comment period. So in January, they had the comment period open. You had a hearing in February. The expectation is that much earlier in this year, the Air Board will be making a decision. And so we had originally looked at July 7th, I believe, is the day that that decision may be made. What has happened since then is that the decision on that draft permit has been postponed three times. So what would have happened in July was moved to September, September 17th. Uh, the DEQ let the public know their intention was to have a two day meeting closer to the Chatham area where the Lambert compressor station would be potentially built. But as we approached that September date, uh, the DEQ shared that they planned to move the meeting to October, and then as we came into October, uh, the DEQ shared that the meeting itself would be moved to December of this year so we've seen that decision delayed, delayed, delayed. That gives us more time to talk about the issue ahead of that permit decision and to highlight what is wrong with the project, what is wrong with adding a compressor station, what is wrong about citing it in a uh, majority black uh, voting district, the Bannister District. And we recently had 16 Virginia delegates and senators send a letter to the DEQ asking for denial of the permit for Lambert Compressor Station owing to significant health and environmental justice concerns. Um, So that was recently submitted. So we are, you know, it it is a growing movement, and that is uh, many thanks to um, Seven Directions of Service and Crystal and Jason and other leaders who are helping build that community between North Carolina and Virginia and keeping this issue um, at the forefront. So the bundle of arrows event, which was preceded by, uh, there's actually been you know a series of events. So there was a May, I think May 2nd walk about MVP Southgate, where that was uh, canvassing within the communities that would be impacted, um, followed by the bundle of arrows event, which continued to raise the profile of MVP Southgate and its impacts to um, Indigenous lands and Indigenous peoples. And then the September 17th rally is another piece of that, too. So just so appreciative to work on that. Um, I am based in central Virginia, so I'm uh, very uh, appreciative if I can um, attend anything or um, assist in a way that um, a lot of the regulatory agencies are here in town. The General Assembly is also in town. So there's a lot of opportunity to have your voice heard um, at the locations of some of the decision makers.
0: Right, right, definitely, and that's something a lot of people don't understand about Richmond, uh, Virginia. Is even though it is the capital and it's home to a lot of people, it is a pretty small place at the end of the day. <laughs> so yeah, that is great. That's really awesome that you are out there at, at the MVP pipeline. Can you explain to us what the MVP pipeline is and, and what some of the consequences are?
1: Sure. So Mountain Valley Pipeline is a proposed fracked gas pipeline. Um, it is about 303 miles in length. It would travel, and the pipe diameter itself is 42 inches, which um, is larger than any pipe that would be placed in Virginia. It is routed to go through some of the steepest slopes of Virginia and some of the most pristine um, waterways and tier three waterways of Virginia over mountains, through farms, um, and the project was proposed in 2014. It is um, a project that is led by MVP LLC, uh, which is a limited liability company made up of the different partners that are part of um, its financial backing. And so <clears throat> it is a private company um, that was able to use eminent domain seizure uh, to obtain properties along the route um, because it was touted to be something that would be helpful for domestic use. So, this is a a project that is growing close to eight years old. Um, Its need was never actual. Domestic use of gas is not rising. And it is uncertain whether it would be for any use within Virginia, anyways, as there's very few points where the gas would be connected to the communities impacted. So in Virginia, it travels through Giles County, would travel through Giles, Craig, Montgomery, Franklin, Roanoke, and Pennsylvania County. Um, So it is an unnecessary project in terms of gas need, and it's unnecessary in terms of future need. It is dangerous. There is no safe way to build it. We've seen that as construction began in 2018 and even pre-construction. Mountain Valley Pipeline was racking up violations. Eventually, they racked up so many that the Department of Environmental Quality asked our Attorney General, Mark Herring, to intervene. And he sued Mountain Valley Pipeline for over 300 violations of our state water quality standards, which resulted in a consent decree and a over two million dollar fine so we've seen just at every point failures of sedimentation controls and inability to safely build frankly the slopes are too steep and once that slope is cleared and that sediment you've removed topsoil you just have a, a bare Fair earth slope, that sediment goes somewhere. Even a small amount of rain is going to push that sediment into the waterways down below. And so we've seen quickly the impacts of that project and the insufficient construction plans and the insufficient erosion and sediment control measures. Choked waterways, choked with sediment, farming any. Species in there. We've seen mudslides. We've seen timber mats, pipe floating down to people's property. We've seen wells ruined. We've seen ponds ruined, farms ruined. Um, It's just years now of cumulative harmful impact. And that's why it's very important that they do not receive additional permission to pollute and do not receive. A new 401 permit from the state water control board in Virginia yeah and you know it was proposed at a time along with Atlantic Coast Pipeline that what was put out there was that these were both very necessary projects and we have seen completely false Um, the project itself is 52% complete to full restoration we see that those Um, In the industry, and as heard at recent hearings um, for the 401 permit, say it's 92% done. It's 90% finished. Based on MVP's own construction reports, which were included in the FERC environmental assessment for Boring Amendment CP2157, it's 52% complete to full restoration. And so there's this kind of idea of um, inflating its completeness, inflating its need to convince people it's a done deal, which which it is certainly not. Um, MVP can and must be stocked, and so should MVP Southgate.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. And so can you tell this natural gas pipeline, in terms of MVP, who is going to benefit from that energy that they're distributing? Of course the company is, but where exactly are they, what exactly are they planning to do with the energy that they're transporting?
1: Short answer, investors, that's who benefits. It's unclear. One of the companies that is involved but has a very small percentage of the contract is Roanoke Gas. That's the only Virginia-specific company that will receive any of it. Where is the rest of it going? Certainly not to Virginians. It is our understanding that originally MVP said it would only be for domestic use, and that's how they justify to FERC that there is public need. Since then, there's indications that international contracts are being pursued. So, it would lead one to believe that the gas, the fracked gas, would be for export.
0: Yeah, and much like the Keystone XL, it sort of reaches Texas and you don't quite know exactly where it is going, right? Outside of Sort of where you can imagine it going.
1: Once you uh, reach, reach a connection point where they can export it, that's where uh, there's a uh, an opportunity for them to export. And it's a similar thought, even to what happened with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which had a route that was 600 miles, but ended up at an export point in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, So, it certainly does not benefit West Virginians, Virginians, or North Carolinians.
0: Thank you. So, um, if you could tell me about, a little bit about the work that Appalachian Voices is doing now surrounding the mineral exploration.
1: Sure. So, this is a, a new and an old issue. Virginia has had a history of metals mining, and you see that kind of literally in some of the town names. Um, I have family from Louisa where the town of Mineral is, uh, is there. Um, gold mining had been a industry in Virginia, but the gold mining of those times, and we're, we're looking at the early part of the 1900s, was a very different process from what happens now. That's small-scale mining versus what happens now is open-pit mining. There's no coming back environmentally from open-pit mining once it's happened. The example we have is hail mine in South Carolina. And so what was discovered is that in Buckingham County, Virginia, a Canadian prospecting company, Aston Bay, had been doing exploratory drilling in the county looking for gold for four years without the county's knowledge. They are not the mining company per se, but they are the company that scouts out locations. They have publicly said they prefer to work in Virginia because the lack of regulations. There are not sufficient regulations on the books for large-scale metals mining in Virginia. And so when that information was discovered about the exploratory drilling, members of Friends of Buckingham, who had been a lead community organization in the fight against the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, started their work learning more, educating others, and asking that the county and the state press pause on any permitting for large-scale gold mining until there could be further study. And so last year, a bill, HB 2213, was introduced and passed in the Virginia legislature that formed a study of what the impacts of large-scale gold mining would be in Virginia the National Academy of Sciences has announced that they will be performing that study and it also created a work group that includes community members to further study this issue so work occurred to Press pause at the county level, but it also occurred at the state level. And so that bill and its efforts are underway. What we have learned in the interim is that the same prospecting company is now pursuing zinc, copper, and lead mining and has secured property in Campbell and Pittsylvania counties, Virginia. So we have the same concerns for large-scale mining of those metals we do not have sufficient regulations on the books safety bonding any of that for large-scale metals mining that include copper zinc and lead so we want to raise the issue let people know this is potentially coming to your community we need to know what the impacts would be and whether or not this is actually helpful or safe for virginia a major concern is impact to waterways. All of these processes create very harmful and toxic waste materials and tailings, and the materials used in these processes are not something you want seeping into your groundwater or getting into surface water. Of course Um, not, right? And so especially for Buckingham, you have a county that is right there on the James River. so. Impacts to the James River have a downstream effect. I'm here in Henrico. Um, I grew up in Chesterfield. The James is one of the three wa- main water sources for that county. But every county along its route from here to the coast um, could be impacted by a process that brings no benefit to the communities around it. It is an extractive industry. A- a different type of extractive industry but still a harmful one Um, and so we have been working very closely with friends of buckingham who have been a a tremendous leader on this issue and fighting gold mining within buckingham county but also expanded our work to include a statewide coalition Um, and so we're in the process of sort of announcing that coalition and we'll have uh, information about that out on October 28th. Um, but we're very encouraged to kind of continue this same idea that we need to take a look at what the impacts would be. Press pause on these. That's a nonpartisan issue. You want to know what the impacts could be. You want to know what could happen to your water. And then you can make an informed decision about whether or not you think there should be stricter regulations on what is allowed. Um, so. It is, to me, not an issue I expected to have come to Virginia, Um, and I'm very appreciative that Friends of Buckingham was able to kind of lead the way in reacting and educating on this issue, Um, and that's that's been a, a significant part of my work with Appalachian Voices since last year.
0: Okay. Awesome. That's really, really cool. And so can you tell me a bit about, you know, because you did tell me about the metal extraction in Virginia, and I appreciate the MVP pipeline. Um, Did you all have any interactions when it came to Crystal and Jason's work with the Indigenous Pipeline protest in D.C. a few days ago?
1: So we were not part of that, but I have, we've definitely been watching, um, and I personally am trying to share as much information as possible about that and so i am just so appreciative of what they did and what other allies are doing up there um, and am watching very very closely Um, it is an issue that is it's everything climate is everything and i'm so appreciative of the indigenous-led work that's happening there this week and work with other allies they are highlighting mountain valley pipeline um, in addition to the other harmful projects across the country like line three and the biden administration has an opportunity to make significant positive impacts in fighting climate change Um, and i'm very excited to talk to crystal myself to hear more about the work up there um, but, and definitely following.
0: Yeah, no problem. Um, you should definitely listen to the interview tomorrow then. Yeah. <laughs> the one you're going to be a part of because uh, we definitely talk about that work. Excellent. Um, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, so, you know, Virginia is the oldest state in the Union and it's the oldest colony in the Union. Um, They're still standing at least. And so, you know, we've been, especially with Virginia communities, we've been having fights over mineral extraction for a long time. And, you know, I often say that mineral extraction for companies isn't really about the actual material itself. It's about the point that companies come in and they literally buy up land and the mineral rights to that land, more importantly. And then they extract and leave the community and the society with the consequences of that extraction right they create wealth but they do not pay for the sort of consequences that their wealth creation produces and so when i talked to dr adam ewing he had this concept of what's called creative destruction whereby you have to go out into the world and sort of destroy and take apart things in order to create monetary wealth. Can you sort of go into detail for me in Virginia what the consequences are for mineral extraction for people who don't live in those communities and also those who do live in mineral extraction communities?
1: Water is life. Right? The impact is downstream, in stream, surrounding area. When you harm a community and you take away what is a human right, which is access to water, you are harming generation after generation after generation. Virginia has a massive number the fossil fuel and extractive industries operating within the state. We are home to gas plants, coal-fired power plants, pipelines, fracking wells, uh, just methane beds. So many industries that have compressor stations, harmful impacts to the people around them. So whether it's pipelines or it's metals mining, you are harming people. And you are not just harming those that are experiencing right now. You are creating a legacy of harm. And so I think that is something that is part of every issue that we talked about today. And then you talked about with Crystal is that legacy of harm. What are you doing that will impact the generations that come? Virginia has an opportunity to change and to be a leader in a truly equitable clean energy future. That's a choice that Virginia can make, and many are already, have made and are, thankfully pursuing and working very hard for. So I guess I appreciate that you um, shared that information. My idea is we are all neighbors. So what affects your neighbor does affect you. We are all in this as neighbors. So extractive industries that may happen in one part of the state have climate impacts for the rest of the state. It's all connected.
0: How long have you been an activist when it comes to mineral extraction?
1: So it's metals mining. And this is a new issue for me. It's within, I was not um, aware of that until Friends of Buckingham have alerted others, and that was last year. So it was after the cancellation of the Atlanta Coast Pipeline. So this is a new and alarming issue for many, including myself. And I am still learning and appreciate any opportunity to help educate myself on the issue.
0: Were you organizing or aware of these issues under the Trump administration?
1: I was. I was employed um, by the Sierra Club Virginia chapter during that administration. Okay. Um, And...
0: Can you tell me the the, the sort of difference in tone and feeling, if any, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, even, you know, with someone like Deb Holland as
1: Interior Secretary? So appreciative that she is Secretary of Interior. I, um, climate is an issue that seems to be really at the forefront of what they want to talk about and learn about. Um, I mean... What we saw during the Trump administration were rollback after rollback after rollback of environmental protections. So what is immediate is we see the Biden administration working to undo those rollbacks. Um, so that that's a huge difference right off the bat. Recent ones include um, those related to NEPA, you know, the clean bars rollback. You know, I remember You want every administration to care about clean air, clean water, clean, healthy communities. And so what we saw in the previous administration was that was not a concern or something they seemed to be interested in. It was more geared towards facilitating extractive industries.
0: But when we were at the MVP protest, I couldn't help but notice that there were something like almost – 18 to 20 officers out there for, like, 30 of you guys, 35 of you guys. Is that a normal experience for an activist, a mental attractive activist?
1: I think within the pipeline activism. In Virginia, we've seen an overabundance of um, officers present at the water board hearings. That's been my experience is that there's really a disproportionate number based on what, it being a public meeting about a permit, about water. There were additional protests occurring in Richmond that day. It's possible that the numbers were inflated owing to that also, so I'm not certain. But I can say that in Virginia, there has consistently been large numbers of police officers present at public meetings about Mountain Valley Pipeline and Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And that's pretty well documented. And these are meetings that were held that took public comment, were for citizens and from residents to attend. And so it really sets a tone of for those in attendance. Um, But that that had been my experience that there were many meetings related to these pipelines that were um, over attended by police. So yeah. I'm not certain about that, but I mean it Not certain, but uh, definitely was a large number of them there that day.
0: (laughs) Thank you for all of your help. Um, I really appreciate this interview.
1: Um, We have a lot of important deadlines coming up in terms of public participation. I want to make sure that those have a chance to be mentioned. October 27th is when comments on the Virginia 401 Water Protection Permit are due. And we've also recently had the Army Corps express additional concerns about the federal component of the water permit for Mountain Valley Pipeline. And so they have reopened a new comment period that goes through November 19th and are hosting two public forums, um, public hearings virtually on November 1st for West Virginians and November 4th for Virginians. Um, And so we are, uh, we share the concerns that the Army Corps has. So I'm encouraged that they are seeking additional input on those issues.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you.
1: Great. Thank you so much. I um, really appreciate speaking with you and uh, your interest and coverage of these issues, and I'm so excited to hear the portion with Crystal and Jason, too.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Do you all have an online presence at all, Appalachian? Yeah.
1: Please. You can follow Appalachian Voices on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram, and our website is appvoices.org.
0: Here I have Crystal, she's here with us along with her husband, and so we are speaking about their activism uh, regarding the MVP pipeline process that occurred a few weeks ago. And so I wanted to have them on, Uh, we had exchanged numbers before, we hadn't quite connected, but I'm glad that she was able to take out time for us today uh, to be able to to talk with us. It's very nice to be with you, uh, Crystal.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: So can you tell me a bit about yourself, Crystal?
2: So I am indigenous. I'm a citizen of the Okanichi Band of the Saponi Nation here in Alamance County, North Carolina. And um, I'm a mother of five children. I'm working on my doctorate at the University of Dayton. That's cool. I am also a national level organizer with Native Organizers Alliance. And uh, with my husband, we co-founded Seven Directions of Service. Which is it's a program of Eastern Woodland Lacrosse, which is a nonprofit. In seven directions of service, we do children, <laughs> women, men,
3: elders, the earth, the culture, and then leadership opportunities for our people, whether that be through politics or some kind of um, professional organizing. So, so you got to realize that the seven directions of service didn't come before the MVP. What happened was they didn't consult any of the tribes because they don't really have to legally in the Virginia and North Carolina areas because all of these tribes um, were mostly state recognized, although a few of the Virginia ones got federal recognition after the MVP already had its plan mapped out. And so they went ahead and had this uh, MVP thing, and my wife and I didn't even know that Virginia had been fighting it for seven years. We only found out about it three and a half or four years ago, and we only found out about it because we heard that it was coming to a sacred river to my wife's, um, Some of her, she got to realize the tribes that are currently existing um, ad- adopted and absorbed some of the other historical smaller tribes. So there's this river called the Hall River, but it was the river of the sacred river of the Sisipaha tribe. The Sisipaha tribe got basically absorbed by the Okanichi Saponi, which my wife is a citizen today. And so we found out it was going through under the sacred river, and it would have been five miles from where our land is. All of our tribal community here is our well water. And so we fully understand that what gets in the local water gets in the groundwater gets in the well water it's like all the waters connected um, as well as the land Father, so crystal uh was gonna begin a um a resistance against it but she was a tribal elected leader at the time and we, when she brought it up to the tribal elected um, chief and administrators they would not let her take a stance on it on behalf of the tribe um, I would say mostly out of fear. Um, one of the leaders was into energy, and he didn't want to upset his local energy buddies at Duke Energy. And he just didn't have the courage to come out as a environmental-leaning tribal chair. So what happened, I had to speak for my wife at the county. The county was discussing whether they needed this energy resource coming through or not. It was determined I think it eventually the whole state of North Carolina determined we don't need the extra energy. it's really like we were they were going to take money just for letting them pipe this stuff through us and so then um when I came to that hearing, Sierra Club was there uh when I was- I mentioned my wife and her tribe thinking I was only speaking for the people um, but my wife. Realized, you know, it got. So my wife realized there might be repercussions. So she basically gave her resignation, resignation to the tribe, and decided she could be a better advocate as just a a grassroots activist. And so then, through um, Sierra Club, was at that hearing, and so we started partnering with uh, Sierra Club, just on the MVP Southgate extension through North Carolina. And then through um, all these actions we started doing, we realized that this thing was in Virginia known about and being worked on long before it ever even touched North Carolina. And then we found out it it, it began in West Virginia, you know, and through the Bent Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains. And then, then we started to see the, the magnitude of how many rivers and waterways this was going to cross, how many um, – what we consider traditionally sacred mountains, but they're even they're even sacred to modern dominant culture because you know books have been written through history about people that uh, traveled those Appalachian trailways. You know what I mean? Um, yes. And the MVP had no regard for any of this. It was just like buying up people's lands. And then as we did more homework, we realized that there were homeowners in acreage and farms that owned these farms for a long time and had indigenous burial grounds on them because the MVP line that they took, is it was a traditional trades path for many tribes, pre-contact and post-contact to European settlers. So then when we started looking up that and we started pointing that out to MVP and trying to hold them accountable, they started calling those things piles of rocks So there was one homeowner from Virginia that had the Cheyenne River Sioux archeological group come look at her so-called pile of rocks. And they agreed it was an indigenous burial Mount had ancestral relatives in it of my wife's, you know, my wife's was a migratory nation uh, before they assimilated. So they've got roots from Virginia all the way to North Carolina and they were one of the major players on that trade path in the 16th, 17th, 1700s. But now we're located here, and um, I, I guess I'm just explaining to you that it, it was like a local um, resistance that expanded into this, like, tri-state resistance, and then at some point, even the, in, the non-indigenous allied environmental groups, including the Sierra Club, but even other groups that are, not as known as the Sierra Club, basically started following my wife's leadership in this uh, because she was speaking about it from a different angle than they had been. Uh, She was speaking about it from the rights of the nature and Mother Earth herself. She was speaking of it from cultural and traditional uh, wisdom and and governance of the land and waters. And so they kind of deferred, started to defer to her, because it was a it was an angle of the fight that MVP was not used to and really didn't have any comebacks for other than lying. They've been doing a lot of lying in the media about their um I don't know if you know they are over three hundred plus violations. Who is they? Huh? Who is What's they?
0: That?
3: MVP. MVP just in Virginia, I'm Jason Crazy Bear Keck and my indigenous um um Line comes from the Choctaw people of Louisiana, but that's not, if you write it, or if you you would say um, uh, Louisiana Choctaw um, citizen because if you say the Choctaw bands of Louisiana, there is an actual organization in Louisiana that has taken that name, um, but that I'm not related to those folks. I'm related. My grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side. We're from two bands in Louisiana, two separate bands, but they married. And Choctaw people are all related anyway from Mississippi to Oklahoma. Um, but I moved here to North Carolina 11 years ago and met my wife five years ago. And um, we kind of have a blended family. So my, the five children that we raise, my two are the oldest, and she's got three.
2: Uh, well, Hayden
3: is the oldest in this casting. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was just trying to explain who I am. through an introduction. Awesome, awesome. Thank you.
0: So, um, I just want to ask. So, uh, both yourself and Crystal are both Native American uh, members of, uh, or excuse me, both you and Crystal are both members of Native American tribes. Can you yes. run through us what that looks like in the United States? Um, because insofar as I heard, you stated that there was a state recognition of tribe and then there's a federal recognition of tribe. Can you explain? Well, can you explain what that is? Can you explain what that's like?
2: Right. So um, there's five over 574 federally recognized tribes. That means they went through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or they had a congressional um, mandate that made them federal. But there's thousands of, um, state recognized tribes. That means the state that they live in recognize them as having, you know, a sovereign government.
3: Through historical, uh,
2: um, proof. But it's, it's very difficult to become a federally recognized tribe because there's so much, um, goals and stigmas that you have to meet or you have to have these qualifications to be a federally recognized tribe and then you have other tribes advocating against you for not becoming a federal tribe because they see that as you're taking away a piece of the pie or the money that they get and so it's very um colonized mindset but um that's absolutely
0: fascinating i had no idea that it was like that
2: yeah it's it's rough like um it's very rough like here in North Carolina, we have one federally recognized tribe it's the Eastern Band of Cherokee, and then the um, other seven are state-recognized, and then there's a lot of Tuscarora that are not even state-recognized. But they have at least three or four uh, nations of Tuscarora spread out in North Carolina. But
3: even though they have 400 years of of proof, like, you know, they can trace their family lines, their language lines, all the stuff that the BIA says it decides on federal recognition. But because the South they basically paper genocided a lot of these nations back when they um, claimed uh, the Trail of Tears and Indian Removal Act. So they, you know, the only reason they claim federal, the East Band of Cherokee, is because they could prove that they hid out in the mountains when most of Cherokee got moved up to Oklahoma. So they were, they were like relatives. But all of the eight other tribes, um, even though they hit out in their own ways, they do not want to offer us, um, and my Louisiana Choctaw are the same way. We can tie ourselves to the Trail of Tears. We, 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 some of us stayed and hid in the swamps of Louisiana. And, and in a lot of ways, we have better historical records we are than even the tribes of the West Coast because the West didn't even start having contact to the 1800s, where we had contact in the 1600s, 1700s. So it's a very precarious way that they decide who they're going to recognize federally and who they're going to recognize in the state. And in the Southeast, they particularly do not want to add any more uh, advantageous rewards to the tribes because it's all based on these energy contracts. So once we become, if we were to all become federal, stuff like the MVP, even though they bully through federally recognized tribes too, they do consult with them a lot differently than they do with our communities. So we don't have the same federal rights against them, which is why my wife has had to, had to strictly uh, build a resistance off the argument of our culture and traditions not the federal legal rights of our culture and traditions. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it absolutely makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. I did want to ask you can you guys go over one more time for me how it is that there is competition between tribes in order to be federally recognized? Can you explain that to me? Or
3: is that. The- I don't want to talk about it in generalizations because if you print something that says all federal tribes are in competition with us, that wouldn't even be factual. So there are certain federal tribes, and you've got to realize all of these tribes have different treaties. So there is like Lakota Sioux and the Navajo and Arizona, New Mexico, are some of the poorest tribes um, there are, and some of their conditions are like third-world conditions, even though they're some of the biggest tribes. And then there's neighboring federal tribes that have made usually energy deals with some of these Um, pipelines and companies and those places have certain monies that they get and then there's tribes that have gone casino way and have money that way and then there's tribes that have refused casinos. So there's all, you know, you can't really generalize but the ones that have played ball with the federal government and are doing pretty prosperous they still believe that if there's more tribes out there or more recognized peoples out there then they're gonna, there's going to be a slice of the pie uh, taken away as if it's one big pie. It's actually not doled out that way. So the federal, I mean, the BIA basically increases the money that they help tribes with based on the number of tribes. So if they increase recognition, all they would do is increase their budget of what they had to offer to tribes. It's not like there's like this one number and and the more people recognize, it's going to, like, whittle down, if that makes any sense to you.
0: And, and no, that makes absolute sense. So I just uh, – so can you explain to but me – But
3: that, is, so, the, so but that is, is the opinion of, of some tribes, yes. yes. There seems to
0: be a system by which certain tribes are recognized and certain tribes aren't. And it seems that – I understand what you're saying, that some tribes in some cases are in competition with one another – but I imagine for a lot of the people listening to this, also myself also don't quite, um, aren't familiar with it as you all are. So if you could just sort of like, how is it that tribes get recognized and how is it also that, how is it that tribes get recognized on the state and federal level? And how does that play out between tribes? I'll put it like that.
3: Okay. So most of the, Federal tribes were recognized because of being placed on reservations after they surrendered to whatever campaigns that were against them. And usually those campaigns were about uh, taking space, taking land, and taking energy resources. So all the energy resources of the 20th century, uranium, um, oil, coal, and even fracked uh, natural gas, Uh, all of these things have historically um, gone through tribes, one, because the reservations are far and out of sight from most urban populations. So if people don't have to see it, they don't have to worry about where their gas comes from. But the other part is um, they would, you know, a lot of these reservations were very poor, didn't have a whole lot of resources, and so these energy companies would come in and say, will give you a few resources, but it, it, it really wasn't to the degree of profit that the company was getting. Like I could take you to places today in the Navajo reservations down by the border of New Mexico, Arizona, and you'll look at this reservation where these companies have gone through and they're not getting any of the taxes. So the cities, states, counties, and federal are all getting taxes through these energy companies. The reservation no longer is. A lot of those contracts were fell apart once they actually got the energy company in the area and it was a, it was on a limited basis so a lot of these federal recognitions are are you know were set in stone once the surrenders happened, and they had these treaties and um and 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 what happened to the so most of these state recognized tribes that we're talking about. These are just people that had the same thing, which the criteria, which is they had a community, they had a trace of their bloodlines and family lines back to the original people of the land, and they had a language. These are some of the federal recognition qualifiers. But for whatever reason, uh, uh, one of the big reasons is is blood quantum. So a lot of times, if you have mixed outside of your tribe um, racially, um, the federal b i a so can you explain what blood quantum means i 'm not familiar with that term so blood quantum is so back in the the days of of the original racism, they used to say if you had one drop of African blood, you were an african and you and you suffered the consequences of that era, which was slavery uh, poverty uh, once that was abolished, you suffered the uh, the legal things that went against African Americans, the, the, the housing things. So with Native Americans, it's the opposite. You can have, uh, 99 drops to one drop of something else and immediately your, your blood quantum is being challenged. So like if your grandmother marries a Caucasian or an African, all of a sudden their children are only 50% blood quantum. And then, if they marry someone else, then it's a quarter blood quantum. And the lower you go on blood quantum, um, your community—if your community goes that way—as a community, um, they can—you could actually lose your recognition to what's called the termination program. So they could actually terminate your tribe. But that's not the only way they terminate your tribe. They, in in the, in the earlier part of uh, the twentieth century. They terminated a Seneca tribe simply so that they could locate them. It's one of, they put them on a reservation, got them comfortable there for a hundred years, and they wanted to put a dam, uh, to serve some urban metropolitan community, and they basically terminated these people and moved them, relocated them. So, So, so all of these things are, they all have to do with one another, is what we're trying to say. So energy companies have exploited indigenous people since the time that they began with energy companies. And the laws that the federal government has used to recognize and benefit and make up for the, um, the oppressions of the past, they basically worked them out So if, if you cooperate with these energy companies, you get more benefit. But then you have the health benefit, where your kids have asthma, there's weird cancers from drinking the water, or maybe there is no water. There are some reservations that don't have running water, but they have well equipped pipelines going right through the town. And so, the. Is that the so,
0: so, if I could just, um, just interject, is yeah. that the only way that tribes are able to get money often, or let me put it this way? Is that the only way that tribes can reliably secure funds for themselves? Is that through mineral extraction? Is that generally how they do it? Or are there other ways that they're able the to only, other way? it?
3: The, the only way to get it so the way the tribe can use their money without, depending on the federal government, would be the casinos. But even the casinos come with contracts. So they might be tribal-run, tribal-employed, but there's no casino builders in these tribes. So there's always got to be some kind of partnership with a casino builder which is coming from outside of the the geography and outside of the culture. So I, I would say, yes, there's ways for tribes to be self-supported. And, I w- you know, I was in D.C. with probably 100 to 200 other tribes in the same hotel and going to the same marches. And I heard all kinds of stories about what tribes are doing for themselves nowadays to be self-sufficient. One is like food sovereignty where they're growing their own foods. Not relying on, uh, government, um, handout foods, which is what, what, what they've been relying on since they bu- got put on reservations. Um, but a lot of this is just starting now. So a lot of the tribal independence and, and, and self-educating and self-promoting, it's just happening now that this, um, it's almost like this awakening that we're here. It's like the pipelines. And all the energy companies have been exploiting forever. Nobody's ever talked about it. And in two thousand sixteen, everybody got behind the, the the fight that was going on in Standing Rock um for the protection of the Mississippi River, right? And now the the Mississippi River is under attack again with the Line Three in Minnesota. And so there's a lot of different tribes coming in solidarity to support them. But the 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 MVP, however, in the Southeast was like a sneaky one because, as I said, these state tribes, and let me, this will explain the state tribes. We talked a lot about the federal tribe, and I would say people know, know more about the federal tribe. The state tribes are the ones that are really invisibilized. And so, what a state recognition means is we have the proof, it's in your colleges, it's in your higher institutions. We've got the archaeological maps going back to the 1600s and the first explorations. So you can't deny it. So the state will say, yes, uh, your whole thing is in our libraries. It's in our colleges. We've got to recognize that you are who you say you are, but you do not get any – there's no federal benefit, and there's really no state benefit. You don't need, I mean, I don't know of any state that even says you get help with your college tuition if you can prove you're an indigenous person from the state. All you really get is to say that you are who you are. And, um, and in a lot of tribes and a lot of communities, that's good enough. Like a lot of times we just want to be able to say we are who we are. We're not really wanting to be dependent off of the federal government. I mean, even the ones on the reservations, uh, do not like the condition of dependence that they've been put in. Um, but the other part of being state recognized that we would like to have Is the ability to be consulted and consented on these projects, which which we don't. So so it's very slippery slope. That's why I say MVP is now being shouted up there in Washington. I actually got arrested Monday on Indigenous People's Day. What is the story
0: surrounding the DC Indigenous Climate Process? What is the story around that? How have you two come to that? And how have you also found how Native Americans have come to that?
3: So Well, we realized earlier on when when we first found out that Virginia had been um, fighting this pipeline mostly through allied non-Indigenous environmental groups, but they had never reached out and said, hey, North Carolina, they're coming your way. And uh, even West Virginia, they kind of were like all doing it independently. And so then when my wife organized the three states uh, with a water walk a few months ago, and we saw the power we had when all three states and indigenous and non-indigenous alike, we had a strong African American and NAACP support, uh, because a lot of the places MVP is going through the, those neighborhoods as well. So we, we built this solidarity and said, you know, we got to get, we got to go to the places that have been fighting this, not just six and seven years but 10, 15, 20 years. So we went all the way out to Line 3, Minnesota, and we, we went to the big march that Jane Fonda spoke at. We got to and talked to the leaders over there, asked them about strategies, and then we went back to, uh, we went back through Line 3 when my wife organized through her job the um, the totem pole journey, which was a totem pole that was built by the Lummi Nation up in uh, Washington State. And it was a gift that was going to go to the Biden administration as a reminder of all the promises and the treaties and obligations they have to indigenous people. So my wife and I escorted that totem all the way through, down to Navajo country, up back through Lakota country, through Michigan, down uh, into D.C. We got to meet all these different folks, We got to meet the people doing Line 5. We got to meet the people that were doing Protect uh, Bears Ears, uh, Protect Chaco Canyon. Uh, We got to meet the Nimipu, which is the original name of the Nez Pierce, which is just a French word meaning nose piercers. So we got to meet all of these folks, get all of these strategies, and bring it back here. So with the solidarity we built there, they started adding MVP in the climate shouts, along with DAPL, Line 3, KXL, Line 5. Yeah, the 400,000 signatures at that point were against Dapple, which is the pipeline that actually got built. The end of the fight was right when Obama was leaving his administration and Trump was coming in, and I believe that Trump just gave him clear access, and so it was fully built, but there's still a strong resistance there from the... People, and so that they had all these signatures and they brought their Lakota youth runners to deliver, to run like five miles and deliver the signatures personally to the Army Corps of Engineers. And my wife and I came up for support. We made good friends, good partnerships. They started putting MVP into their national dialogue when they speak. And then they invited us to the organizing call of what's called the Fossil Free, Fossil Free Campaign. Um, and it's really like holding Biden accountable to what he said he was going to do when he campaigned. And so he started and out and he... What is that? And so what is that? What is it that Biden promised when he campaigned? He Well, for one, he promised the nation that he was going to build back better, and he wasn't going to do the Green New Deal, but he was going to emphasize parts of it that would affect these communities, uh, historically oppressed and poisoned by natural gas. So that, so that, what what the nation doesn't know is there were negotiations going on through the Native American congresswomen, through the Native American uh, dialogue, like the nation-to-nation nation dialogues. And so there was a lot of hope in Biden's campaign that he was going to correct fossil fuel injustice, basically that targets our communities. And it just he he just hasn't he hasn't um, he hasn't produced his. You know, my wife is actually quoted in because uh, my wife was actually the North Carolina tribal engagement deputy director for his campaign in North Carolina. Which that's means incredible, that,
0: Crystal. that's incredible.
3: Which means that she got those uh seven recognized, uh state recognized and uh one federal, the East Band Cherokee, in dialogue with um people in his campaign and, and discuss why they should vote for him. So we didn't turn the state blue, which is historically a red state, but we did make it a nice shade of purple, um, and so even she went in the Rolling Stone and she had to say, "Look, you know, I was on the phone with his agents and hearing the promises, and they were giving me the campaign points of why I should tell my people that he should be the one on the ticket, and he has not followed through, and so that, so this." fossil fuel thing that we're doing it was decided to do it on indigenous people's day first um because they 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 like to recognize us and talk about our contributions um they don't really talk about how most of those contributions were forced and uh and 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 taken (laughs) um but at least they're they're recognizing our contributions but we just wanted to to show up in dc and be like you know the nice words are not good enough and so like I said, we had many nations down there. I was actually not. Uh, Crystal had a stomachache from the night before, and she was gonna speak because she's actually the face of our leadership on MVP here in North Carolina, Virginia. And so I drove out there in the middle of the night to speak for her. And I had already spoken at about eight thirty in the morning, and I wasn't gonna be part of the arrestee actions. Like I didn't. I had a different wristband on. But when I saw indigenous women, children, and elders crossing the line to be possibly arrested, I just, something in me felt like I had to be over there to make at least the young women feel safer, maybe the older women feel safer. Um, The the you know, the adult women were pretty tough. I don't think I, I made them feel any safer. They were pretty strong. But there were young women that crossed the line and there were elder women that crossed the line. So... I crossed the line spontaneously and, uh, I did, I was the 10th the to the last to get arrested out of 136. So for some reason they didn't want to, I was in prayer, the secret service and the parks police, they didn't, it's like they were hesitating for moving me from my spot, maybe because I was in prayer. But, um, when they did finally come to get me, they asked me to, Come peacefully and I said, Well, I can't choose to get up and leave these women uh without protection. It's just not an it's not part of our culture. And they said, if we promise to not handle these women in a rough way and be totally respectful, will you not fight us? And I said, I I'm not gonna fight you, but I'm not gonna walk out of here willingly. So they picked me up, they put the zip ties on me and they carried me out uh on my own two feet i didn't make him drag me or nothing i didn't make it hard on him but i did do that yeah that's incredibly
0: brave of you, you guys had brought up biden and crystal you said he said that you were one of the leaders for joe Biden's campaign in the state of North carolina can you tell me a bit about that because i have an additional question that i'm going to ask you here in a minute
3: director of north carolina tribal engagement okay okay and so and so hi crystal how are you
2: okay how are you
3: for engagement
0: for native americans in for joe biden in north carolina isn't that
2: right right the deputy director so um we were contracted through the the local state party but um, you know i worked i didn't i wasn't like for joe biden but i worked on the coordinated campaign which was um you know hired they were hired through the state and I was the Deputy Tribal Engagement Director for North Carolina.
0: Okay, and so can you tell me how you came to that position? How did you come to the campaign? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to
2: Actually, them? they did because um, I am the, the state um, president for the Native American Caucus of North Carolina, and so I have done a lot of work in the community public arena to try to um, bring forth, you know, change, bring forth awareness, invisibility of our indian or native american people here in the state and so i kind of people were saying she's a person to go to that deals with you know um, politics elections and things like that that's
3: incredible and well she also doesn't speak highly enough of herself she (laughs) is the sole reason that kamala spoke with the head of the Lumbee tribe and that biden came out with the announcement that he was going to seek Approval for recognition of the Lumbee tribe. Normally you don't get nowhere near the Lumbee tribe. <laughs> doesn't matter who you are, she created that that discussion. But she doesn't like to give she doesn't like to toot her own horn.
0: <laughs> Crystal, you worked with the Joe Biden campaign and it sounds like mm-hmm. you've had a lot of influence over uh, the actions when it comes with the Native American tribes and Joe Biden's administration, right? So can you explain to me Um, How do you find the difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration in terms of reception and also um, just on your own terms, in terms of how you all have experienced life on your own reservations?
2: Right. So the difference between Trump and, and Biden is Trump was being capitalistic about just about everything, you know, trying to find a dollar, whether that was like the expense of, you know, sacred, items or sacred places such as Bears Ears, President Biden, he has, um, he understands that he needs to work with all people and then especially Native Americans. He's done a lot. Um, He uh, campaigned on Native American issues and um, he did. He made a lot of promises to Native Americans. Can you review the promises that he made? For number one, he made a promise to increase cultural awareness or uh, cultural protection of, like, these sacred spaces. So, like, he just signed a, a bill or, or executive order about Bears Ears. He also said that he would hire or engage with a lot more natives. And so he also brought a lot of natives to the table. So he you know, got Deb Holland as his first Secretary of Interior, the first Native American female to be in that position ever. So that was another one. And then, you know, access to better health care for Native Americans and just things like that. I see.
0: I see. And that's, yeah, and that's really powerful, um, especially considering the kind of uh, dependence that Joe Biden had in places like Arizona. And North Carolina, when it came to turning out the vote uh, for Democrats in order to take the state, because I believe Joe Biden only won the state of Arizona by about 0.3 percent. Right. Yes. And so you all are very pivotal within the Democratic coalition um, across the country, but especially in Virginia and North Carolina. And when it comes to Virginia and North Carolina, one of the big topics is always mineral extraction, right? So uh-huh. in Virginia, uranium, we have some of the largest uranium deposits in the country, and we've yep. had it since 1980, and yet there are still companies who want to go about trying to explore for those minerals, and there are a lot of communities and people that fight back. I did want to ask you, so Secretary of Interior Deb right? I don't right. want to play a card of, you know, she's one of you all, why don't you agree with her? The kind of contrast I'm trying to draw here is Deb Holland was made Secretary of the Interior. What kind of significance does that have to you personally and also to um, the kind of uh, politics that you have?
2: So one significance is it raises up our visibility issue. Just to have this person in that type of position, one is very, you know, symbolic because in the past, 200 years, um, Natives have been so invisible. And so now we're able to, you know, have a person in that position that's over land management, you know, also the BIA, and being able to understand that there's cultural, cultural and spiritual understanding, like having somebody that's on your same team that understands the cultural and spiritual significance of certain things. And then, secondly, it also means she is a target. It, you know, her nomination or her, and that was very difficult because they were kind of worried that she was not going to get voted in through the committee because people understand that she was against like fracking and some of those things like that. And so, you know, there was a lot of Republicans who, Supported. There was there. I think there was one or two Democrats who who also did not vote for her. But you know, we were able to amass our political power and talk to get people to write letters of support, and we were also able to get people to influence their Congress people or their representatives in their districts.
0: I do want to ask you in regards to living within a Native American tribe. Can you explain to me? what that is like being an island nation because the kind of struggles that I hear you all talk about in terms of securing food and securing other resources is not something that we hear from many other communities in the United States and I think also people like myself and listeners are not necessarily acclimated to understanding how their community has to go and acquire food that they can't just go around the corner to a shopping uh, mall or like a, a grocery store. Can you explain to me what that's like?
2: Right. So you have to understand that not all tribes live on reservations. First, especially on the East Coast, most of the pre-contact tribes before the formation of the United States, you know, they lost that their land due to the westward expansion and colonization. Most of the tribes here on the East Coast were paper genocide now, so that means their races were changed. From Indian or Native American to mulatto, colored, or black, we live in tribal communities. Most people here on the East Coast live in a tribal community. And even though it's very similar to reservations, um, just out west, you know, the tribes in the plains and out west, they were put on reservations, like removed from their original location and then forced onto a reservation. Um, secondly, in both, like, a reservation and in our tribal communities, usually they are in very rural areas, which are food deserts or places where people can't access um, quality food, such as, you know, fresh greens and vegetables, fresh fruits, things like that, you know, but there's always, like, these quick dollar generals where they don't have a lot of healthy food, it's a lot of preservatives that are imported from um, across, you know, the United States and not local to the area.
0: That is fascinating. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, That is an interesting experience with food, with just basic resources. Can you tell me what is the relationship like between a tribe and a state government or a federal government? How does that work? Because I know listeners – understand the difference between local state and federal but can you explain the sort of hierarchy there is um or you know the sort of ladder there is between native american tribes state governments and federal government
2: so you have to look at tribes operate on sovereignty and so when you have a tribal government you have an elected leader who is usually the chief or chairperson. And there are, they're like heads of state, right? So, like the case in point, when my husband was talking about, you know, I was able to get a phone call with the chairman of the Lumbee Club, Harvey Godwin, with Kamala Harris. Um, it was like two heads of states um, being speaking about their issues and their, you know, and you know what issues like the Lumbee uh, nation has and how this other government who's also sovereign is going to help them. And so what people usually fail to realize is state tribes are often not looked at as being sovereign, um, and only the states recognize them. But then in actuality, not even the states really view these tribal entities as sovereign nations, making their own decisions or having their own reign over their people or things like that. And so the Native American tribe, they work really hard to have, you know, to just have this little bit of sovereignty where they can make decisions that affect their people, that affect the land or the businesses that they have. And so um, that's that's a good uh it's like a good analogy between those.
0: Awesome. I do thank you for that information. Um, I I wanted to reflect just a bit more on the indigenous pipeline protest in D.C. The Indigenous Peoples Day, right, Mm -hmm. and the sort of narrative that we've all spun for ourselves, especially within public schools, that somehow the United States is born free of an original sin, right? and we often very much so talk about how America's original sin, the United States' original sin has to do with has to do with black slaves being brought over for money in exchange and he mentioned that earlier. But in your case, what I'm really interested to hear is sort of colonialism's original sin, which is the massacre of native Americans and the privatization of land, the enclosure of land, and the sort of campaign that was waged by the U.S. federal government for hundreds of years against Native Americans. How do you see colonialism's impact today on your work? And how do you think under Joe Biden, America is doing by
2: Native Americans?
0: And also, is Joe Biden making good on his promises?
2: Um, So the colonial impacts that I see today, so first you have to understand that the Native Americans who were here, who were first contact, they were enslaved first, right? And that is what kicked off a lot of the wars between the Native Americans and the colonists, like the Tuscarora Wars were started because they were enslaving and kidnapping the women and children. And then they would take the men and ship them off to, like, the Caribbean islands. We see a lot of that uh, in a historical trauma that shows up in our people today. So people don't even understand that they have these bags or things that are happening. Like, we have a lot of suicides. We have a lot of, I am trying to say, Suicide, oh, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drug use, just because of the trauma that people have experienced and they don't understand, you know, why they have these addictions or these problems, and that's one of the reasons why. How you see it today is modern-day suicides, modern-day issues and traumas that people are trying to cope and deal with. And even though we have a lot of youth, say, what would you say?
3: We're probably going to say two different sides of the corner. He's asking Biden's,
2: um, well, on it. Well, well, what I'm mean, really asking
0: is, is sort of colonialism's impact on you guys today. Because from what I'm hearing from you guys is that Native American tribes are having a hard time accessing resources to survive and to thrive. And that's not something new to anyone's imagination. However, what I really want to drive home for listeners is what the consequences are. And I call them epigenetic, I call them genetic, I call them social, economic, all the rest of them. However, what are the the, the the physical consequences, right, of policy that's not good for you all? What are the consequences of colonialism? And that's exactly what you were explaining, which are suicides, drug overdoses, high unemployment, um, and also, uh, you know, um, extreme poverty as well. And you were pointing that out. Um, but you can go ahead. You can continue going.
2: So, Jason, what do you think about it? Like, colonial impact on this today?
3: It almost makes people feel not a part of the society, and so then you get the ones that are a personalities and really wanting to prove themselves and like and, and then when you try to prove yourself to a culture that's not yours um you you tend to sell your own values out you you tend to um turn on your fellow neighbor because you're trying to look better for the one that you sees in power or control, um, I would say that it would be hard for Joe Biden or any administration to impress me if they don't begin their leadership with a full apology, a full recognition, uh, a full um, commitment or vow of some kind of reparation. And when I say reparation, it doesn't have to be financial. If you go to our original culture, uh, we had currency, but our currency was simply to trade because we wouldn't accept the gift without trading something in return. It wasn't currency like you don't get to eat if you don't have this. It was like here's my food, and then I might give you some of our sacred wampum shell, or in the West Coast I might give you some turquoise. But it wasn't the same kind of capitalist currency. Now, I'm not saying that the capitalist system of most of the nation have to bend and go our way, but they do have to realize that we are still the ones holding to the true values of the land. Like we're the only ones out here getting arrested for protecting water, air quality, and land. And then you've got elected people who are paid to protect air quality and land, and they are basically letting the energy companies cheat, make mistakes shortcut, use cheap resources, cheap steel, so that when the projects are developed, they, they, they almost ultimately leak. I mean, it's like you, you, there has to be some kind of recognition that the poorest of your people, the smallest population in the country, is doing the most to, to protect everyone. Like all the people, if the laws are starting to influence some of our values, Every culture, every race, every gender, every religion, every po- political ideology is all going to benefit. There's going to be less asthma. There's going to be less weird cancer cl- clusters in communities. And, and, yes, it'll cost something, but guess what, guess what happens when you, when, you cost, when you cost a company that so when they don't have just millions of dollars to buy their way and bully through everything, that's when you see companies actually doing creative things like designing greener energy, designing energy that doesn't hurt everybody. You know, it's like those same companies could take all the energy that they're doing to to try to re-offend black and indigenous neighborhoods and they could start figuring out stuff that doesn't hurt anybody. I I really appreciate both of you guys' time.
1: Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. Good night.
3: Bye-bye.